Father, I pray that I would uh, come not in my own strength this morning, but in your strength, and that you would speak through your word by your spirit. Father, we pray that your spirit will be at work today, opening our eyes to the truth of your word, to the greatness of who you are. And Father, we pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. We well, can go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 50. This is actually going to be our last sermon in Luke for a while. So these verses that we're going to study this morning mark the end of Jesus' ministry in Galilee. So that's really where we've been focused for a while now in Luke, Jesus' ministry in Galilee. Uh, what follows is Jesus turning towards Jerusalem and beginning his journey towards Jerusalem, where he will ultimately be crucified. Uh, so this is kind of a natural place to take a, a break in Luke's gospel for a while, Lord willing. The plan is to come back after some time. First, we're going to go study some other books of the Bible, but the plan is to, to come back after some time and continue our study through Luke. But uh, next week, our plan is to start a series in the book of Exodus. Uh, so that being said, follow along as I read in Luke 9, starting in verse 37. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. Just then, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, because he's my only child. A spirit seizes him. Suddenly he shrieks, and it throws him into convulsions until he foams at the mouth, severely bruising him. It scarcely ever leaves him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. Jesus replied, You unbelieving and perverse generation, how long will I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. As the boy was still approaching, the demon knocked him down and threw him into severe convulsions. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all astonished at the greatness of God. While everyone was amazed at all the things he was doing, he told his disciples, Let these words sink in. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement. It was concealed from them so that they could not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. An argument started among them about who was the greatest of them. But Jesus, knowing their inner thoughts, took a little child and had him stand next to him. He told them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes him who sent me. For whoever is least among you, this one is great. John responded, Master, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow us. Don't stop him, Jesus told him, because whoever is not against you is for you. Well, the desire to make a name for yourself, the desire for fame, the desire for greatness, seems to be a pretty common human desire. People want to be remembered. They want to be seen as great. Uh, studies have found that a, a large percentage of people, no matter where they're from, no matter what country they're living in, they daydream about being famous. Now, how many examples can we think of of people who have named companies after themselves or named buildings after themselves? You can find all sorts of books and articles telling you what you can do to pursue greatness, to become greater. 
In, in recent years, I think we've probably all seen the rise of social media influencers whose main goal seems to just become more famous. In the social media world, the more followers you have, the greater and more important you are, or at least the greater and more important you are seen to be. There seems to be a human desire to be great, to be known as great. I do not think that desire is, is all bad. It can be a fine thing to want to maximize your God-given gifts and talents, to solve important problems, to achieve something great. Uh, but all too often, and probably almost always, if not always, sinful pride gets involved in that desire to achieve great things becomes a desire to have people praise us, for people to see us as great, and not for us to give glory to God by using the gifts and talents that he has given us for his glory. Well, the verses we'll study this morning speak directly to this issue. These verses are concerned really with the nature of true greatness. What is true greatness? What is it that makes someone great. Well, Jesus teaches that it is not fame, it is not renown, it's not having people think of you as great, it is not having a building named after you, it's not the number of followers that you have on whatever social media platform that you are on. It's not how many generations remember you after your death. So the main idea of this text or, or Jesus' main teaching is this. That true greatness is found in humble service and humble faith in our great God. And true greatness is found in humble service and humble faith in our great God. And so as we, we think on this true path to greatness, I have two points for you to consider this morning. The first is greatness demonstrated, greatness shown or displayed. And then the second is greatness defined. Greatness defined. So first, we're going to look at this idea of greatness demonstrated. Uh, so let's remember where we are in Luke's gospel. Let's remember the context of where we are. Last week, we saw Peter, James, and John, those three disciples of Jesus, go up on the, the mountain with Jesus for the transfiguration, to be witnesses to his transfiguration when Jesus uh, displayed his, his glory to his disciples when his face was changed, his clothing was changed. Uh, all that to say, uh, at least three of these disciples had just seen a great demonstration of Jesus' glory and his greatness. It had just been demonstrated to them in an amazing way. But when, when Jesus comes down from the mountain, which is where we are now this morning, what we're going to be studying this morning we see a, a further display of his greatness. Uh, so when, when Jesus comes down from the mountain, a large crowd gathers around Jesus, as so often happens when he shows up in a place. And a man from the crowd calls out to Jesus, asking him to help his son. His son seemed to have something like epilepsy, a, a seizure disorder. He was suffering from severe seizures or convulsions. Now Luke makes it clear that this was the work of a, a demon. I mean, the father of this boy seemed to know this as well. He told Jesus it was a spirit who was causing these seizures. Luke writes in verse 42 that uh, it was a demon who knocked the boy down and threw him into severe convulsions. Now this does not mean 
That does not mean that all seizures or anyone who has epilepsy or, or routinely has seizures has a demon. It does not mean that it's a demon behind all of these things. It could be, and it, it maybe is in some cases, and it certainly was in this case, but not always. Well, in verse 40, we, we see that the father of this boy reports that he had come to Jesus' disciples, presumably why Jesus was still up on the mountain and asked them to heal this boy, to cast out the demon, but they were not able to do it. And so this would have been the disciples that Jesus had left behind when he took Peter, James, and John up on the mountain with him. Well, Jesus' response to this news from the boy's father seems a bit surprising, maybe not what you would expect. He issues a rebuke. Look at verse 41. He says, You unbelieving and perverse generation, how long will I be with you and put up with you? Now the question is, who is Jesus rebuking here? Is he talking to the crowds? Is he talking to this, this father and, and the crowds in general? Or is he talking to the disciples? Now I think the answer is yes. In other words, I, I think Jesus is intending to rebuke both the crowds and the disciples, though Perhaps he has his own disciples most squarely in, in view, or who are the, the main target of this rebuke here. So Luke does not record this in his gospel, but Matthew and Mark record this same event. And they tell us that after Jesus healed this man, the disciples come to Jesus privately, and they ask Jesus, why, why couldn't we cast out this demon? Like, why didn't it work? Well, Mark says, Jesus tells them it could only be cast out by prayer. But this is what Jesus says to his disciples when they ask this question in Matthew 17, verse 20. He says, because of your little faith. For truly, I tell you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will tell this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So the, the well-known theologian D.A. Carson says this about Jesus' response to his disciples in, in Matthew's Gospel. He writes this, At a superficial or a, a surface level, the disciples did have faith. They expected to be able to cast out the demon. They had long been successful in this work, and now they are surprised by their failure. But their faith is poor and shoddy. They are treating the authority given them like a gift of magic, a bestowed power or a given power that works on its own. In Mark, Jesus tells them that this case requires prayer, not a form or a ritual. In other words, not some like phrase that you have to recite just right, but an entire life bathed in prayer, accompanied by faith. In Matthew, Jesus tells his disciples that what they need is not giant faith, tiny faith will do, but true faith. Faith that out of a deep personal trust expects God to work. Faith that out of a deep personal trust expects God to work. So if you, if you remember back to the beginning of Luke 9, and that is when Jesus sends out his 12 disciples, which included the same group who could not cast out the demon. He sends out the 12 disciples and gave them authority. 
his authority to heal people, to cast out demons. But it, it seems like the disciples forgot that they were dependent on the Lord, that they were acting in his authority when they did these things, that they did not have an authority of their own, but they acted in Jesus's authority. So if you are walk into a dark room and you flip on the light switch, well, it's not the light switch or even the wires that are connected to the light switch that have the power to turn on the lights. Uh, you, you can flip the light switch, the lights will, will turn on, but not because that the wires or the switch itself have the power to turn on lights. No, it's because they are, are conduits of the electricity that powers the lights. Well, so it was for the disciples. They were simply conduits of God's power and authority, and it was to be exercised by faith. The faith that God would and, and could act through them. But perhaps the disciples had begun to think of them, themselves as, as great. Perhaps they had begun to think of themselves as people with great power and authority. And perhaps they had begun to receive some acclaim from the crowds themselves. But it's not them who are great. It was, it was Jesus. It is God who is great. Well, this is something that we need to remember as, as Christians as well. We are simply instruments in God's hands. We are ministers of God's glory. We are conduits of God's grace. Now, in God's great and, and mysterious wisdom, he has enlisted his people or called his people to help him accomplish his purposes here on earth. He does not need you, and he does not need me for this. He does not need anyone for this. And yet he chooses to use you, he chooses to use other Christians, and all Christians, to help accomplish his purposes here on earth. Why he does this, I am not sure. In some way, it brings him more glory, but he, he uses us, though he does not need us to accomplish his purposes. Therefore, true greatness, true greatness comes through humble faith and reliance on him. And humble faith and humble reliance on the one who is great. Oh, the disciples seem to have, have forgotten this truth. And Jesus' rebuke, though, I think, is not just for the disciples, but for the crowd that was present as well. Uh, Jesus uses this language like unbelieving and perverse generation in other places in the Gospels, usually, and I think perhaps always, to condemn the crowds or the Pharisees, those who have gathered around Jesus, those who, who do not believe in him. Uh, so I think it likely carries that sense here in Luke's Gospel as well. In fact, in, in Mark's gospel, where he provides more details about this interaction between Jesus and the, the father of this boy, Mark writes that after the father tells Jesus that his disciples could not cast out this demon, this is what the father says to Jesus. He says this to Jesus. If you can do anything, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can... Everything is possible for the one who believes. Immediately the father of the boy cried out, I do believe. Help my unbelief. 
Well, John Calvin, the famous reformer, said this about the Father's statement. He declares that he believes, and yet acknowledges himself to have unbelief. These two statements may appear to contradict each other. They may seem opposite of one another. But there is none of us that does not experience both of them in himself. Brothers and sisters, your, your fight against doubt and fear, your struggle with anxiety, your fight against any sin is at its root a fight against unbelief. The Christian life is a fight against unbelief. Uh, to put it in a positive way, the, the Christian life is a fight for faith. It is a fight to believe. But the point is unbelief is at the root of all sin. When you sin, there is some promise of God that you are failing to believe. There is something about God that you are failing to believe. When you are fearful and anxious, it may be, it may be because you are doubting God's goodness and His promise to never leave you or forsake you. Perhaps it's because you are doubting God's power to act and to do what is good for you. When you intentionally sin, you're doubting that God's ways are better and that the pathway to true joy and contentment is found in Him. Maybe when, when you're struggling with a really difficult sin in, in your life and you just want to give up and perhaps you do give up, for a season even struggling or fighting against that sin. Well, what are you not believing? You're not believing God's promise that he has given you everything you need for life and godliness. That his spirit is at work in you and that you can fight your sin. When you do not take your, your burdens to the Lord, when you do not pray and, and seek his help, when you seek to conquer the challenges of life on your own, well, you're doubting that God hears you or that God cares for you. And most importantly, you're doubting that God has the power to act. You're doubting his greatness. Uh, unbelief is at the root of all sin. And so these verses show that the contrast between faith in unbelief. Jesus is highlighting our need for continual faith. We see our need to constantly be reminded of Jesus' promises and Jesus' greatness. And brothers and sisters, that is what the, the Christian life is all about. It is a walk of faith. It is being reminded of God's promises and God's character. We need to be reminded over and over and over again of the simple truths of the gospel and the simple truths of Scripture. We need to be reminded of the truths we already know. It's the reason God has left us His Word. It's the reason God calls us to, to meditate on His Word, to, to read it, why we constantly want to be in His Word. It's one of the reasons God has given us the church and other brothers and sisters in Christ, and to remind us. It's one of the reasons God has even given us a memory, so that we can remember times of God's faithfulness in the past, or to be reminded of God's greatness, His faithfulness, his promises. It's when we cling to those that our faith is strengthened. And so true greatness comes through humble faith and reliance on the one who is great.
And so here in these verses, though Jesus issues this rebuke, he is gracious to his disciples, he is gracious to the crowds, and he is gracious to this father and son and gives them all a reminder and a demonstration of his greatness. Jesus rebukes this demon and he casts it out. And this was a powerful demon. The disciples were unable to cast it out. We see in verse 41 that even as the boy approached Jesus, it, it throw, the demon throws the boy to the ground. But Jesus proved that he is greater still. And so we read in verse 43 that they were all astonished at the greatness of God. Now, that was the point of Jesus' work here. It's the point of Jesus casting out this, this demon. It was an act of compassion to the, the Father and the Son, certainly. But it was also to demonstrate his greatness. And following this miracle, Jesus turns his attention from, from demonstrating his greatness, from healing this boy, to teaching his disciples about the nature of true greatness. Uh, and so that's where we're going to turn our attention in the second point of the sermon, which is greatness defined. Greatness defined. And so look with me again at verse 43 of our text. While everyone was amazed at all the things he was doing, he told his disciples, let these words sink in. The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand this statement. It was concealed from them so that they could not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. So as the the crowds are are busy marveling at Jesus' greatness and what he has just done here, Jesus pulls his disciples aside. He pulls his his disciples aside uh, privately to teach them about his mission on earth and the, the path to true greatness. So you you probably noticed that celebrities or or famous and powerful people often have entourages or groups of people that like always follow them around or just always with them. I don't know what these people do, but they're always seem to be hanging around these, these famous people. It's like their inner circle. Well, why do they do this? Why do these people follow these people around? I think it's probably because they want some of their fame, the the fame of this celebrity, uh, or their their greatness, their influence, to rub off on them. They want to be in kind of this orbit of of greatness and and fame and and power. They hope that they'll get to enjoy some of the benefits of what that celebrity or, or famous person gets to enjoy. Well, so Jesus pulls his disciples aside and tells them, it will not be like this for you. At least not in this life. He tells them that his destiny is not one of universal acclaim. It is not one of universal praise or admiration with everyone just doing whatever he wants. Now what is going to happen to Jesus? He's going to be betrayed at the hands of of sinful men. He's going to suffer. He's going to die on the cross. This is Jesus' second prediction to his disciples of his own death that we have seen in Luke's Gospel. You can remember back just a couple of weeks ago, he told his disciples in Luke 9.22, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed and be raised on the third day. And then right after that prediction in Luke 9.22 was when he went on to tell his disciples that the path to following him which is the path of true greatness, following Jesus, 
Well, what is that path? It is to deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and share in his suffering. So, so Jesus' greatness would be fully realized in his humble death on the cross. Now, you might say really in his resurrection when he defeats sin and death, but that comes through his humble death on the cross where he paid the penalty for sin for all who would repent and believe. And this was God's plan from the beginning. And Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, for this reason, in other words, because Jesus humbled himself and offered his body as a sacrifice for sin, for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. We see a number of things in that verse, or in those verses, but we see that, that glory comes through sacrifice. Jesus' example marks the pathway of true greatness. It comes through humble service, and it comes through sacrifice. The disciples do not understand all of this. They didn't quite understand Jesus' prediction about his death. We read in, in verse 45 here that this statement of Jesus was concealed from them so that they could not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. What, is, what exactly does it mean that this statement was concealed from them? Well, it could mean that God concealed it from them so that they would not understand, that he did not give them a full revelation of what he was saying. And on one hand, I think this is certainly true. It is God who gives wisdom and understanding. It is God who gives us eyes to see and ears to understand. It is the Lord who reveals and it is the Lord who conceals. So I think it would be accurate to say that God did not give them the wisdom and insight to understand what Jesus was teaching here. But it could also mean that the disciples did not understand because they did not seek understanding. You know, the text says that they did not ask Jesus about what he said here because they were afraid to ask Jesus. Now remember, they had just asked Jesus why they could not cast out demons. If you remember back to the parable about the, the sower who spreads the seeds, well, right after Jesus gave that parable, the disciples come to him and say, hey, can you explain this to us? We, we don't understand what you're talking about. But here, they're afraid to ask about the statement. I'm not sure why they were afraid, but they, they are, and so they do not seek understanding. So perhaps... This statement about the, the truth of what Jesus was teaching being concealed from them, it's best to see it as an interaction between God's sovereignty on one hand and man's responsibility on the other, which is something that we see quite often in Scripture. The disciples had the responsibility, as, as do we, to humble themselves and seek understanding. They did not. It was their own unbelief and, and, and fear that prevented them from understanding. Well, at the same time, they needed God to give them eyes to see and ears to hear, as do we. They needed God to give them minds to, to understand, to be able to comprehend what Jesus was teaching. And in this case, he did not. Perhaps because of their own unbelief. God is sovereign. Man is responsible. 
I don't think we'll fully understand how those two things come together. They are compatible teachings of the Bible. Uh, and yet I don't think we'll fully understand how they, they interact with each other in this life. And that brings us to this argument that, that the disciples have among themselves. So, so look with me at verse 46. An argument started among them about who was the greatest of them. But Jesus, knowing their inner thoughts, took a little child and had him stand next to him. He told them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes him who sent me. For whoever is least among you, this one is great. Well, Luke does not tell us exactly what prompted this argument among the disciples. And you could picture it. You know, maybe Peter, James, and John started boasting about how great they were because Jesus invited them up on the mountain with them to him to see the transfiguration. You know, maybe the other disciples replied that well, Jesus must have thought that they were greater because he left them to, to minister among the crowds. Uh, maybe their argument started from, from something completely different from that. We're, we're not sure. But whatever prompted the argument, it is complete foolishness. Don't be too quick to laugh at the disciples. You could probably think of a number of foolish arguments that you've engaged in. But uh, this is like, uh, this argument among the disciples is like 12 of Fujera's stray cats that are like half starving, getting together and, and talking about how great and strong they are while they're standing next to a full-grown lion. Uh, it, is, it is foolishness. Jesus once again demonstrates his greatness in response to this disciple's argument. He understands their thoughts. Luke says he knew their inner thoughts. Well, well only God can, can know that. And then Jesus takes this opportunity to teach his disciples about the nature of true greatness. And that true greatness comes through humble service. So to make his point, Jesus takes a small child and tells his disciples... Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes him who sent me, which is God the Father. For whoever is least among you, this one is great. So uh, Jesus uses this, this child as an illustration because in that time and in that culture, children were lowly. They were low members of society. So in many places today, children are celebrated, esteemed, catered to, we give them first birthday parties so that they, even though they have no idea what is going on. Uh, but that was not the case in first century Israel. Maybe they had first birthday parties, but I doubt it. And so the disciples' willingness to welcome a child, to minister to a child, to care for a child, and most importantly, to serve a child, would be evidence of their humility. And it's this type of humility that was the path to true greatness. So this, this incident actually kind of recalls to mind the beginning of Luke 9 when he does send out his disciples. Remember, he sent them out with nothing, no food, no clothes, and that was going to be a test to the towns to which those disciples traveled. Would they welcome his disciples? Would they show them hospitality? That would be a sign of whether they welcomed Jesus. Well, the hospitality to, to welcome his disciples would require serving his disciples. They'd have to feed them. Maybe give them clothes, give them what they need. Well, so it's kind of being flipped on its head here. And Jesus is saying that the disciples' willingness to welcome or serve the insignificant, this, this child, would be a sign of whether they truly followed Jesus. 
And we see this teaching throughout the Bible, James 1, 27. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Matthew 25, Jesus says that whatever you do for the least of these, the sick, the hungry, the thirsty, the stranger, the one in need, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for Jesus. Why is this true? Why is ministering to children or widows and orphans the same as serving Christ? Why is that the path to welcoming Jesus? Well, it's because that those people cannot do anything for you in return. You're not going to get great recognition. You're not going to get great reward from serving children or orphans or widows. I mean, everyone is eager to serve someone famous or, or powerful or, or influential, right? Restaurants are quick to post on social media if a famous person comes and eats at their restaurant. Some restaurants will hang pictures on the wall of the famous people who, who come and eat there. Well, why do they do this? Because it makes them look good. It's good for business. Makes other people want to go eat there. But Jesus says that his disciples... And his followers are those who are willing and eager to serve the least of these instead. And that's because it means that they are not seeking their own glory. They are valuing the people and the things that Jesus values. So as we're we're thinking about this illustration that Jesus gives with this child, let me just take time to say thank you. And how grateful I am for those of you who serve the children here at Emmanuel, for those who invest your your time in the children of Emmanuel Church, for those who have invested your time in the past in our our children. And when you're doing this, you show that they matter. You're giving your time that they may know more about God. As as we announced this week and as we announced this morning, Lord willing, we're going to be starting a a Sunday school twice a month for the the children here at Emmanuel. Let me encourage some of you to serve in Sunday school with those kids, to teach them or to to sit there while somebody else teaches them, to help manage them. Volunteer your time. It's, It's a worthwhile ministry. It is an act of humble service. For those of you who don't serve in that way, and and, and that's okay, let me encourage you to get to know the kids of the church. Tell them hello. Talk to them. Show that they they matter to you, that they're important. It's It's a small way that you can live out these verses. Jesus' illustration with the with the child here, actually helps make sense of the last couple of verses we see in our text for today. Verses 49 and 50, when we read, John responded, Master, we saw someone driving out the demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow us. And don't stop him, Jesus told him, because whoever is not against you is for you. How do those verses fit in with everything else that we've been talking about? You have this guy casting out demons in Jesus' name. The disciples try to stop him because he does not follow them. He's not in this group that's going around with with Jesus. Based on Jesus' response, I I think it's likely that this man was a true believer in Jesus, just not one of those who was, I guess, in Jesus' entourage following him around. And Jesus tells his disciples not to stop him because who is not against you is, is for you. 
In other words, this man can't be casting out demons in my name at the same time be, uh, be talking against me or, or hindering the ministry. So what's going on here? And I think what is, has come before can help us to understand a little bit of what's going on. It seems as if the disciples perhaps were concerned with their own glory. And maybe they thought that they were and should be the only ones who were granted authority to cast out demons in Jesus' name. After all, hadn't Jesus sent them out to do some of these great works? Uh, while it's not certain, we don't get a certain answer in this text. I, I think perhaps the best interpretation is that the disciples were a little jealous. I mean, after all, they just failed to cast out a demon. Here you got this guy who's successfully casting out a demon. Perhaps they wanted the, the praise from the crowds for themselves. But Jesus tells them that this man is not hindering the ultimate work of proclaiming the kingdom of God and bringing glory to God. Jesus is reorienting their thinking. He's, he's changing their thinking. It's a reminder to his disciples that true glory comes not through self-exaltation or to make our name great, seeking to make our name great, but it comes through humble service. My friends, this is the example of Jesus. This is the example of your Savior. He humbled himself by giving up the glory of heaven for a time to come to earth. He was without sin, but he came and lived among sinful humanity. And out of love, he gave his life for sinners who could give him nothing in return. He gave his life for those of you who could offer him nothing in return. There is nothing about you. There's nothing about me. There's nothing about anyone else here on earth that commends us to God. When Jesus came, who had all glory and honor, Jesus, who was lacking absolutely nothing. He, did not, he was not adding anything to himself by coming to earth and dying for, for mankind. But he came to serve and not be served and to give his life as a ransom for many. A ransom for many who were his enemies, who were dead in their sin and opposed to God. Well, brothers and sisters, this type of humility and this type of service is the path of true greatness. True greatness is found in following the example of your Savior, not seeking your own glory. It is to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Him. And so just ask yourself this morning or, or ask yourself over the course of this week, are you willing and eager to humbly serve those who can do nothing for you? Are you willing to provide for those who can give you nothing in return? Are you willing to serve in ways in which you will receive no earthly credit? Are you more concerned with your own well-being or the, the well-being of others? Are you more concerned with your glory and your greatness or God's glory and, and His greatness? The Christian life, the Christian life is not one of self-promotion. It is one of humble faith and it is one of humble service. So I encourage you this week to ask yourself how you can follow the example of Jesus in this area of your life. Is this the path of true greatness? But as we close, I want to ask, take time to ask, what exactly is greatness? Well, we've talked a lot about the path to true greatness, but, but what is it? Well, to, to put it simply, greatness 
is to be exalted by God and not by man. It is to be adopted into God's family. It is to receive eternal life. It is to one day share in the glory of your Savior, Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus was despised and rejected by man, but exalted and favored by God. Well, Christians, Christians then are those who are content to wait to share in the future glory of their Savior and humbly and quietly serve here on earth, to humbly and quietly even perhaps endure suffering and persecution for the name of Jesus Christ. Well, that is what true greatness is. But friends, I want to make it clear, absolutely clear, that you cannot earn greatness on your own. You cannot earn salvation through extraordinary acts of service. No amount of giving to charity or, or serving others earns you future glory. And friends, actually, if, if you think that your good works will earn you a place in heaven, or your good works contribute to your salvation, you are not humbling yourself, but seeking to stand on your own greatness and your own glory instead. It's pride. Jesus says in verse 48 that whoever is least among you, this one is great. Well, friends, if you are not a Christian, you should know that this type of humility begins by admitting that you, that you are one of the least of these. It is by admitting that you are a poor and needy sinner in need of a Savior. It's admitting that you can offer nothing to Jesus. That you can offer nothing to God. Even your righteous deeds are as filthy rags. It's to confess your sins and place your trust in Jesus alone for salvation. And if you would like to know more about what that looks like, I would be happy to talk to you after the service. But Christian brothers and sisters, it is only when you recognize that you are one of the least of these that you will marvel at Jesus' sacrifice for you. It is only then that you can truly embody and, and live out the humble service that, that Jesus speaks of in these verses. It's the, it's the gospel, it's the truth of the gospel that motivate this type of life. You must remember and meditate on the gospel if you want to follow the path of true greatness. Uh, Jesus humbled himself and he, he died for you that you might share in his glory, but also that you might humble yourself and love and serve one another. And therefore, true greatness is, is found in humble faith in the Savior who loved you and died for you, and true greatness is found in humble service in his name. Let's pray.